maybe I can work in the acute care and do what interests me by going in the ER. So I love that. <laughs> it's that sort of that was kind of the driver, you know, melding, melding. You know, I, I think of myself as somebody who has an acute care personality with outpatient interests. Yes. Um, and that is essentially the ED is an outpatient ICU in a lot of ways. I like that. That's so, a really nice way to frame that for people who don't understand the setting. Yeah. Welcome to In the ED Now, a podcast that makes you an excellent physical therapist in the emergency department. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, and you are In the ED Now. Today's episode will be with Dr. John Seip, a physical therapist who started multiple emergency department PT programs, both in a bigger city as well as a rural area. It'll be interesting for you to learn how he started those programs, how he develops relationships, how his, he manages his patients, and what his treatment approach is. You won't want to miss this case study where you learn about back pain, vertigo, neuroplasticity, all in one. Thanks for listening. You're in the ED now. All right. Welcome to the show. You're in the ED now. We have Dr. John Sype with us today. Welcome. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. A uh, little injury recovering from, but uh, hanging in there. You got to be your own emergency department patient. That's right. Well, tell us a little bit about you and about your background. Um, well, obviously I'm a physical therapist and my background was, uh, acute care is my main, you know, main background, which is actually the thing I did not want to do in school. Same. <laughs> Good as zero interest in it whatsoever. All those students out there who are like, I'm never going to do <laughs> acute care. That was us. Yep. Yep. I was going to treat sports injuries. You know, I've had plenty myself and I was going to get people back on their skateboards and snowboards and playing soccer and all that. But, um, a little bit, you know, I did the Marine Corps and I had a family during PT school. And so I was a little bit non-traditional and during my acute care, uh, internship, I was like, this is really cool. The team is cool. The doctors are cool. Like the flexibility is amazing. Mm -hmm. You don't have a list of patients waiting for you. You can take a day off. You can have second breakfast. Like yeah. the acute care <laughs> yes, is a, is so a pretty awesome place to work. And so it just, to me, there seemed to, the acute care uh, affords a pretty high quality of life, a good work-life balance, Yes. right? You can leave work at work and home at home. And, and that's harder to do in the outpatient setting for me. I agree. Um, and so I, I got into the acute care, but after a while, I still struggled with my interests being spine pain um that kind of thing and and it was hard to apply those interests uh i did you know i'd find ways and i still took all the pain neuroscience courses i still took the manual therapy courses the you know spinal manipulation courses just because that was what would interest me and I uh, started looking at the research in Australia and I was like, oh, maybe I can work in the acute care and do what interests me by going in the ER. So I love that. <laughs> it's that sort of, that was kind of the driver, you know, melding, melding. You know, I, I think of myself as somebody who has an acute care personality with outpatient interests. 
Yes. Um, and that is essentially the ED is an outpatient ICU in a lot of ways. I like that. That's so, a really nice way to frame that for people who don't understand the setting. Yeah. Um, and how I got the, you know, this was in Duluth, Minnesota. And how I got that started was I just said, hey, if we're seeing these patients for home safety on day one or zero in the hospital, why can't we just see them in the ED? And there's there didn't seem to be any restrictions from a legal point of view. It was more of a restriction from a cultural cultural point of view, the culture of the hospital. It just wasn't what we were used to. And so I just got permission to do my notes down there. So I'd go see a few patients, go to the ED, do my notes, and talk with the doctors, let them know what we can do, go back up, see a few patients, go back down, write my notes, and just started uh, having a physical presence. Mm -hmm. And once the doctors started to understand what it was about, after a month or so, I got permission to spend mornings in the ER without any acute care responsibility. I could just sit there with or without productivity for, for mornings for one month. Um, and then we projected based on that time in there, what it would look like if you were in there full time for a year and the numbers, uh, more than paid for a therapist to be there. Yes. You know? And no so, surprise, right? No surprise. Yeah. So then we got the go ahead to, to, to go in there, but the problem, uh, became a massive, uh, staff shortage. We were, ended up being down seven therapists. Oh, no. So, so I actually had to wait almost four years before I could do it full time. And uh, I appreciate that four years because I, I was still doing consults down there, right? I would be covering the acute care and then just do a consult model. Um, but during that time, I really studied up on vestibular, which I was terrible at in school. Horrible. Like I... I passed the test and dumped the info. Like I was like, ah, this is not interesting. <laughs> I think you're not alone in that. I think a lot of PTs do that. So I, I really, I took as many vertigo patients as I could in the hospital when they came through because I knew that I needed to know what I was doing. And I studied up on pain and, and I got certified in manipulation. Uh, the reason for the certification was I figured if I did a spinal manipulation in the ER and it happened to be a doctor who didn't like that kind of thing, and then it happened to be a patient who complained about it, I needed to be able to stand in front of a judge and say, this was the right patient at the right time, and I was the right provider, and I provided the correct treatment um, in this situation, and here's the clinical prediction rules, and here's the research, and here's why it was the correct patient or correct treatment. And I figured a, a certification would help in that scenario. Um, so that is why I took it all the way to that certification level for that. Um, and the first, you know, so after four years, we finally got the go ahead. And my first month in the ER, I had a student. <laughs> what? I was like, oh, I got to build this program and do a student and business. build a physical therapist <laughs> this is gonna be terrible um how is this even gonna be possible and that was really eye-opening for me because it turned out to be an amazing student experience and the students were able to rise to the challenge in ways i did not predict um i will say that 
knowing that the student was going to be with me in the ER, the, the school did kind of handpick a student that, sure. you know, was performing well and, you know, had shown the ability to listen and all that kind of stuff. So, so it wasn't like, <laughs> it was a bit of a handpicked student. I uh, will give that. But that being said, um, the, the student was able to start seeing some of the patients, you know, with, with, yeah, I would stand right outside the room. I'd listen, we'd check back with each other. Um, I set the expectations right away at the very beginning. Hey, I do not expect you to have an independent caseload. Thank you. Um, can, th can that just be a thing that when we expect <laughs> students to come into the emergency department, that being in the ED is not entry level. And at the end of the CPI, yeah. we have to judge those students are on there. Are they an entry level physical therapist? Not are they an entry level physical therapist in the emergency department? Right. So I think it's the same for ICUs too. But I feel like I feel like you're preaching to the choir because I'm like you're not going to have your own caseload at the end of this. You're just it's not a thing that that we expect you to be able to manage. Yeah, exactly. And and is and 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 that actually set up for a great learning environment. Yes. Because they weren't feeling like the pressure was to take as much on as they possibly could. I said, you have your whole life yes. to do that. Yes, but thank what, you. <laughs> what, you need to, what you need is to learn. And yes. so I'm going to grade you on, you know, how you accept feedback and how we, you know, move forward and learn and adapt and your communication and your willingness to do something hard yeah. or uncomfortable. Like that's what this is going to be about. And yes. they would they would carry you know nearly a full caseload on uh, on occasional days with acute care patients when the ER was slow. Yeah. Um, so I knew they could do it, but you know there I mean there was one scenario that stuck out so much in my mind. I ended up writing an APTA blog about it. Um, it was this this patient that had vertigo and was in a right in the middle of a hallway, right near the main hub, right where all the traffic of radiology and everyone was going and um, had such severe PTSD that they couldn't have a male therapist. Oh. So I'm like, I looked at, I looked at uh, my student. I was like, well, it's you. This is all you. I'm going to be over here in the distance and you're going to pull up a chair and you're going to sit next to this woman and you're going to make it as peaceful as you can. And you got this. And she was able to build rapport. She was able to calm the patient down. She treated the vertigo. They went from puking to walking and they left the, left the ER. It was, it was amazing. And this is, and this is a student, a student did that. So I feel like, you know, the ER is, has definitely changed my perspective on what what students can handle with the right mm -hmm. mentorship and 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 even newer PTs. Yes. Uh, um, for me, you know, I had all the communication and confidence. That's that's what I had. But I had to relearn all the ortho stuff over and over and over and over. I was constantly relearning. And people coming out of school, they have all the ortho stuff. They have all those basics. 
they just have to learn the confidence and the communication. Yeah, they have the, I feel, I feel like they have the tools, right? They have yeah. the tools. They're just not quite sure how to use them yet. And, right. you know, also how to finesse them a little bit. Because even if you have a screwdriver and you go to put it into a certain type of washing machine, if that washing machine is a little bit different or it doesn't fit quite right, you can't necessarily just shove it in there. You have to finesse it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a thing that students definitely need to work on. But those are the harder things to teach. But I also find that they're ready to learn them. Yeah, yeah, they are. And, you know, I always tell them it, it takes a couple of years before you probably could solo ER, but um it's uh definitely doable and early you know the earlier you start the better i agree so you totally started a successful program in minnesota and you were yep. a clinical instructor of the year by the way so i'm sure that student really got learned a lot from you but you don't work there anymore what happened what what came next well my wife and her mom went on a bucket list trip to nantucket island massachusetts and she came back and she's like, John, you need to get a job in Nantucket. <laughs> sounds like something in like a, a, a Lifetime movie Channel movie where yeah. you follow, follow your dreams out to Nantucket. So how did that happen? Were you so, just like, yeah, let's go? Well, you know, I was pretty happy. I was happy where I was at. Things are going really well. Um, from the get-go of doing the, the uh, practice in Duluth, I started it with other people and with a team. Yeah. So I was always training other people to do my job. Yeah. Uh, for when I got an injury or there's sickness or I can't be there or if I ever left, right? I wanted the program to lat. I wanted it to be about physical therapy and not me. Sustainable. Yeah. So, and I don't think there's any way around that it's going to be about you a little bit initially. Correct. But having multiple personalities in the ER actually is really, really helpful because some doctors like different people better than other people just True. because, you know, they get along with it or they have something in common or they talk differently, right? Like I come across pretty confident and maybe that's off-putting to some people, right? Mm -hmm. So they might prefer a, a different PT that seems more less less like me <laughs> i don't right. know right no i get it like and, and, i feel like i'm an acquired taste right people either love me or they hate me there's like nothing in between yeah, so and i think that goes for patients and providers i think you know part of what made that successful was was the team the team the team made it successful and um so i kind of looked at my situation and i felt like i could walk away from this and it will still go Mm -hmm. And there was a job uh, posting in Nantucket, and I thought, well, let's give, you know, it wasn't necessarily for ER. It was a little more of an outpatient kind of position with a little bit of hospital coverage. But during the interview, um, the uh, director here created a job for me uh, to be 100% in the hospital and then to start the ER program because that was something he'd kind of always wanted to do. And so it was, I was just happened to be the right person at the right interview at the right time. And so I was like, okay, let's do this. So we spent six months going to Goodwill and getting rid of like half our stuff so we could <laughs> move everything into bins. You know, I, I have yeah. a family of five, so it was a, it was a process. 
Oh, uh, same. Like I moved down the street during the pandemic and that was a struggle. So I can't imagine like just changing my entire life, moving my family yeah. five to Nantucket, but now you're living your best life in Nantucket. Yeah. So, um, we, uh, here it's a, it's a completely different practice model. Um, it's, it's very rural. Uh, there's, there's sort of a boom bust where it's like the hospital is completely full, completely empty, completely full, completely empty. Um, summers, you know, the, the population quadruples, you know, goes from 15, 20,000 to 70, 80,000. Wow. Um, so you got this small hospital, small ED that just becomes overwhelmed and then it becomes, um, nothing. So it's really up and down. So what do you do with that? And, um, what we, what we created was I would, it was like an outpatient, inpatient swing ED physician. And so I have uh, a outpatient slot from eight to nine where I'm not available to the hospital. And then I have another outpatient slot from one to two. Okay. And those, those are permanent slots. And the schedulers can schedule those outpatients weeks in advance. I have two swing slots from 11 a.m. to 12, and then another one from three to four that I can tell the schedulers, hey, open up my 11 tomorrow or for the next couple of days, hospital's dead, ER's not been too busy, let's, let's open up another slot so I'll see three people this week. Um, I have it set so there's always an hour between any scheduled slot. So if the ER were to call, I'm never more than half hour from being able to see that patient. That makes and, sense. And um, if I happen to be stuck in the ER, it, there is a few times where I've had to have the front desk notify the, the outpatient, hey, he's going to be about 20 minutes late. <laughs> and people are pretty understanding they're like oh you were you were in the er that seems important like I'm, yeah yeah I'm, rural health care right like yeah, that's just so, the way it has to be sometimes so we just have to be communic communicative about it um i don't have the ability to be as physically present in the er as i was in duluth mm -hmm. um just because it's smaller yeah and if it gets really busy i it's, it's not where I want to be sitting. Um, and so I just kind of, there's an ER, a track board. Mm -hmm. Um, and I put the same information that's on the track board, like right for all the nurses and everybody to see, I just put that same information on my Epic so that every half hour, hour or so, I'll just glance at it to see, is there somebody that looks like they might need me that I need to be paying attention to, or I'll shoot a text message to the doctor without any HIPAA info. <laughs> hey, do you need me to see room seven? Yeah. yeah, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're, we're just communicating a lot via secure messaging or, or a text message um, to create that uh, PT on the back of your mind kind of presence, even though sure. I'm not there all the time. What I have found was with starting this practice is it was very similar to the other one. Like the same techniques work. 
build relationships, tell stories, lots of stories, and then even more stories. Uh, you know, I just recently read um, a research article about how, how scientists need to start telling stories to um, convey complex scientific data. Yes. And that really resonated with me because years back, I've, I've always preached like, keep telling stories. That's how you start an ED. Yes, exactly. Um, and so- Can confirm. Yep. You, and so, you know, and I even tell my manager now, like I say, hey, I'm going to feed you stories on a regular basis of what's happening and what, what so that you have information to, to feed your administrators and your yes. bosses. And, um, you know, you can give the numbers and the numbers are helpful and the numbers eventually cinch the deal but it's the stories that make people not even really care that much about the numbers. Correct. Yep. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. Right. It's like the data is great, but the stories show the picture that the data can't. So yeah. the data shows numbers, but the stories show meaning and you have a case study to share with us. Right. So you have a story to share. Yeah. About why this matters, about why what we do matters. Yeah. So this, you know, when I was, when you invited me, Rebecca, to this podcast, you know, you, you were saying that this is, you know, the audience here is mostly EDPTs. Like, so I'm going to, you know, tell a, a story here that's fairly nuanced, um, gets a little deep, but ultimately, you know, has, has been helpful for me with treating vertigo in the ER um and and, and humans the, and humans in the and ER. humans right i love this story i'm so excited <laughs> um this happened many years ago i want to say about probably eight years ago seven eight years ago and you know i was a little bit newer to the whole er thing and i had this this one patient who got a bout of vertigo and they fell down holding a wooden spoon, which then th slit their throat. Um, and they had pre-existing back pain. and From obesity. the outside or the inside? From the outside. Like it just. Okay. I'm like, wait a minute. Like I'm imagining this person like falling face down on the spoon. Okay. Yeah. They were holding the spoon in their hand and then they fell and the spoon must've uh, hit the floor or something. And it just, whoosh, the whole thing. And it, they luckily missed like the arteries. Oh my gosh. You know, it's just a gaping wound from, you know, almost to the ear. And uh, so when I went to see this person for vertigo, that's what I was posted for vertigo because they were dizzy. They were in bed convulsing, like almost like seizure, like convulsing with back pain, spasms, like severe back spasms. And um they they couldn't really move their knees because arthritis and they couldn't really flex at the hip or the back like this person was like a very obese like board they were like a board you you, you almost you had to tip them up you couldn't even bend them forward because of the back spasms yeah and i remember thinking like how in the world am i going to treat this vertigo because <laughs> that's what i was there for right, right. you gotta do, do the thing you're called on right 
So immediately I had to just step back and triage the situation. And I was like, okay, Epley's fix hall pikes. That's out because I don't want to open the throat back up and they couldn't handle it anyway because of the back spasm. So step one, we just need to get this person moving, um, figure out their home situation, figure out their prior level. So this quickly, all their symptoms took a backseat to home safety. So home safety became priority number one. Getting the back to calm down became priority number two. And the dizziness became priority number three. And I thought about all the anxiety I see in the ER. And I, in that moment, I kind of had a question. What if I use my pain neuroscience training to calm these symptoms down as if the dizziness was pain? Mm -hmm. Can I treat this dizziness like I would treat pain? And so I, once he was relaxed enough to have a conversation in the bed, I just explained to him what vertigo was and I explained to him what to expect and that you're going to sit up and you're going to experience this dizziness for about 20 seconds. And I want you to take five deep breaths and just calm down the reaction to the dizziness. And I explained to him that most of the time it's the reaction to the dizziness that we're treating in the ER, not necessarily the dizziness itself. Mm -hmm. And the reaction is nausea, uh, adrenaline, tingling in the hands and face and feet and fear. Like these are the reactions. And I said, if you react to the dizziness, the reaction sometimes can be more severe and last for hours. Yes. But if you don't react, you will have dizziness for 20 seconds and it should be gone. <laughs> so he sat up, super dizzy, you know, took four of us to sit him up, but we got him up and um, had the dizziness and then did the breathing and it went away. And I, I kept this person on my caseload. I recommended admission to the hospital. They weren't safe for home. And I kept them on the caseload for a couple of days so I could follow up on this, this way of treating vertigo that I'd never done before. And um, day two, he had the, the nystagmus. You know, and it, it had some torsion to it, a little upbeat with a lateral torsion. I mean, it was classic posterior canal. And, but, but it would last like just a few seconds. Like it'd sit up and then just a few seconds and then go away. And there's no way that this, I mean, this person didn't really move during the day. So there's no way they just happened to do some movement that repositioned. They weren't rolling in bed. They weren't getting up and down. They were like in a chair or laying and that was it. And they were using the hospital bed to sit up. So you weren't even getting like a log roll to, yeah. to like, there was no repositioning happening in this situation. And by day three, the nystagmus was gone and the symptoms were gone. And this was definitely not like a neuritis or labyrinthitis. It had none of those features. This was a, like a mechanical, vestibular BPPV, 
Um, mm -hmm. And so it, and I, and I treated it with education only. And it, that, that was very eye-opening to me. And so I started looking into the research on this situation. And what I learned was that everybody ages, everyone gets older, Shit. everyone's <laughs> vestibular system declines. Yes. But not everybody is dizzy. And okay. you can think degenerative disc disease, right? Everyone gets it, starts around age 25, 26. But the difference between, you know, someone diagnosed with it and someone not is usually just an image. Um, yes. I looked into studies that where they do surgeries on ears. And in one study, they reported nine out of 10 people had particles in their ear and only one reported dizziness. Hmm. Right. And so what the neurontologists are thinking is that the actual cause of dizziness is unknown in 60% of people, even though if you think you know what it is, it is actually unknown in 60% of those patients that you have with BPPV. Sounds and a lot like low back pain. It's a lot like low back pain, right? And the Epley is effective over 90% of the cases. And this is huge, right? You know, you have that person with low back pain bending backwards, they get better. You don't know why, but it doesn't matter. They get better. Mm -hmm. You have this person with vertigo, you do an Epley, you have a 90% chance you're going to get it right. This is the kind of information that gave that student we talked about earlier the confidence to go into that treatment. Yes. You might not know why they have vertigo. Don't stress. That's okay. Start Don't be with okay. Something. And if you don't know why doing Epley, you'll probably help it. <laughs> um, so digging a little deeper, the neurontologists have, you know, some say that it's uh, a critical uh, mass that has to occur. So maybe it's not a matter of one stone in the ear. Maybe it's you have to develop a certain amount of them to finally become symptomatic. Um, kind of like the boiling frog analogy, right? So if a jog or, or there has to be a, a detectable change. So critical mass or detectable change, right? So like if you have a frog that jumps into cold water, it's going to stay there until it boils and it probably will not live to tell the story because it'll adapt over time. And that's what happens to most of our systems, right? We have changes in our vestibular system, but it happens slowly and we adapt along the way. Mm -hmm. And it's not until we get Alzheimer's or some sort of cognitive dysfunction that our ability to adapt changes and we start to experience those natural aging changes. Um, but then every now and then, you know, the frog jumps in the boiling water and it immediately knows it's boiling, so it hops out. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think a lot of the people we see in the ED or in the outpatient are experiencing a change that happened so rapidly that it was detectable and, yeah. and the nervous system picked up on it. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's why we would be seeing them and why the nurse treating them might also have stones in the ear and not be feeling it at all. Yes. So... And I think what we need to know, what would be nice to know is why there are those differences and how we can like manage those things in advance and how we can provide the right care to the people that are really experiencing the distress. Yeah. So that, that goes a little deeper. 
So the vestibular system is deeply rooted in the brain. It has reflex connections to other sensory symptoms, systems like proprioception, vision, and it's actually part of our very consciousness. Mm. So our vestibular system um, is part of our self-awareness, yes. right? So if I move my head, then I know that I am a unique entity in the environment moving my head and it's not the environment moving it's me moving and that that helps me be aware of me that yes. i am different from what i see out there i am my own entity and so you can imagine if you get vertigo and you can't tell if you're moving or the environment environment is moving that it is an attack on your very self-consciousness. It's an attack on your self-awareness. Mm. And that is going to um, have a significant multi-system danger response. Yes, and it's incapacitating. Completely. And you're gonna pump adrenaline, you're gonna get in an inflammatory response possibly, you're going to create memories. Ooh. You might end up with a little PTSD. Um, you know, depending on the situation, sometimes it can become chronic because of the amount of neuro uh, changes that occur, depending on how dangerous uh, the system thinks it's in. And Neuroplasticity so, is not always our friend. Neuroplasticity with vertigo is not necessarily our friend unless you can make it our friend yeah which is why and vertigo why it's very important for us to be there right away to start calming that system on day zero yeah <laughs> that way we don't have to see them in two years because they've had vertigo ever since that ed visit and then um, disabled or lost their jobs or been unable to participate with their families the sooner we can see them, the sooner we have that role of starting with that education, that reassurance, yeah. and those next steps, you can kind of really change that person's trajectory. Absolutely. Um, just kind of an interesting little fact that I ran across in all this research is that the brain has a preference for symptoms of vertigo, kind of like it might have a preference for pain. Um, Weird. Yeah. So... We don't really experience the vestibular system very much in reality. We typically experience a memory of what we think we should feel. Mm. Um, because 99% of vestibular input is self-induced. Almost all of our daily vestibular input is self-generated. So if I move my head or I'm looking around, I'm moving around. It's triggering that vestibular system constantly. And if I actually felt that, I would be dizzy yes. all the time. And so what happens is the brain has these copies of movements, hundreds of thousands of movements, right? There's these little neural pathways where if I trigger, you know, in my pre-motor cortex, you know, I tell my neck it's going to move. That 
also communicates with the vestibular system that, hey, the neck is about to do a movement. So let's start accessing the we're about to do a movement memory. And then my eyes, they do a thing. And there's all these reflexes and they all work together. And when you do that movement, you will see what you're focused on wanting to see. What was the purpose of that movement? My purpose of that movement was I want to look to my left. And so my brain is going to shift away from vestibular and toward what it is, the goal of the movement, looking to the left. And I'll, I, I will experience the goal of the movement, but I probably won't experience the movement itself. I'll experience a memory of it. And let's say I trip when I do that. Then I'll feel a whoosh of movement because the goal of the movement did not match what actually happened. Unexpected outcome. It was an unexpected outcome. And so for a brief moment, I felt the entirety of the vestibular system, which as we've shown before, it's connected to the autonomic. I mean, I pumped a little adrenaline. I had a little memory. I had an emotion about it. Little fight or flight, I caught myself, right? And now I'm going to remember it. Yeah, I'm going to remember it, right? So all that just briefly happens when I felt that vestibular system. And if a person, you know, is on a merry-go-round, they're not in control of that movement. So they're going to feel it because the brain has to process what's happening to me. Mm -hmm. Um, If you get crystals in your ear or you get a lesion, you know, a neuritis or something like that, well, you're going to feel that entirely because it's not a memory. You don't have a memory for that. Correct. And so you're going to experience the fullness of the vestibular system until your brain can figure out what to do with that input and and how to shut it down. Um, And that's where the education really, I think that's where the education comes in. I think that the those examples that you're giving are applicable to so many different diagnoses that come into the ed as well so when you have your person that normally walks out to get their trash can on the ice and it's normally not a problem but this time they fell like that's a whole new experience that brings that that trauma that memory that adrenaline surge and then that fear for the next time so now they're afraid to get back up and those patients who yesterday i had a patient who had severe low back pain um just rolling over in bed like out of nowhere again her memory of doing that movement and the expected outcome of that movement is to roll over and go back to sleep the expected outcome was not to be awoken with massive back spasm and so now she's afraid to what roll over in bed because that expectation is gone that like expectation of safety and predictability is now gone and so she now has this fear of moving at all because she's lost that sense of safety and stability that came with that prediction, that muscle memory, that like memory of how the movement should occur. So I love that example with the vestibular system as well. And I think that helps us tailor our education for all diagnoses to these patients as they start moving again. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. You know, pain is what kind of I think the vertigo behaves a lot like pain. <laughs> I think you're right. That's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that case study. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. And we're about out of time. So what I want to ask you, John, at the end here is like, what are your words of wisdom for people practicing in the ED? You've been doing it a long time. You know that it's great sometimes. You know that it's really awful other times. Like, what are your best words of wisdom to prepare somebody to really be successful in this setting? Stay curious. I love that. (laughs) 
because um, when you learn new things, you get excited about it and you feel less burned out. Um, realize, you know, when you're treating these patients that you're only a piece of it, that it's not necessarily your responsibility to always fix it. Yes. Um, you get in there, you help, you do what you can do. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but if you've stayed curious and you've done your research and you're confident in your skills, um, then you can step away from that room knowing that, yep, I did what I can do um, and not always feeling like you failed. So there's a lot of times in the ER where you just can't get that pain down or you can't get the dizziness to go away or you can't get that patient to discharge. And um, I think just having stayed curious, having the knowledge, having the confidence um, helps with the feeling of burnout that comes with feeling like you might be a failure when you're really not. Yes. No, I think that's valid. I had a day like that this week where I felt, I felt at the end of the day, like I hadn't helped anybody. Like I felt like a failure. I felt like no matter what I did, I was just up against too much and there was nothing I could do. And then yesterday I went to work and I felt like I helped everyone. Like I made, I feel like it was like tale of two, two EDs, right? The first day, just nothing. And then yesterday, like truly felt successful. And like, I, I really helped people. So I think you're absolutely right. Staying curious, staying patient with yourself and knowing that you're doing the best you can and giving your patients their best, your best. And so they can be their best is all we can do. Yep. Well, thank you so much for being with us, John. You're in the ED now and you're officially discharged. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. In the ED Now is a podcast hosted and produced by Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT, as part of Rebecca Griffith Physical Therapy, LLC. Our podcast makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. This podcast is intended for educational use only and is not intended as clinical or medical advice. While we make every effort for accuracy, factual errors may be present. Since you've been in the ED, I'm prepared to give you your discharge instructions. Please subscribe, share, and find more at the eddpt.com. You're officially discharged.